0: Turn me to the book of Titus as we continue looking through that book. And we'll be in Titus chapter 2 this morning, which has to do with how we act and how we model those actions. So before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this text today, that we pray that you would help us to See its words, um, not applying to other people, but applying to our own hearts. It's easy oftentimes to um, not see our own sin. Um, And so we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to see our own sin, that we might better serve you. Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts, our souls, our minds. Lord, we pray that you would lead us to the truth this morning and teach us from it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, it made me think about um, a lot of the books and a lot of the studies that have been written really in the last 10 years. It's, they've been done a lot um, over the years, but in the last 10 or so, especially, about how increasingly we have our, our kids leaving the church. And not what I mean. You know they're actually leaving. They they graduate or they even get into high school or whatever, and they just kind of phase out of church and they don't want to uh, be a part of it anymore. I talked to a student this week. I regularly talk to students about issues of faith. They just kind of come up. And uh, this kid, I don't remember how the conversation started, but he was telling me that his Sunday school teacher was a former NFL player. And I said, well, what's his name? He said, I don't know. I haven't been in two years. And I thought it was kind of funny that he referred to him as his Sunday school teacher, but he hasn't been to Sunday school in in two years. And I just found that fascinating. Church kids don't go to church. But when they do, a lot of times they aren't even getting the gospel. And I think we're familiar with that as well. Rather than that, they're lectured on things like abstinence from sex, drugs, and alcohol, and cussing. And though they attend church... Those are still the very things that they tend to be doing. Rather than preach the gospel to them, we hire entertainers for them. We call them youth pastors. uh, In the hopes that they will somehow be able to rescue this kid from the uh, abyss of adolescence that we kind of see it. And which is slowly extending. And as you read these books, adolescence is extending into the later 20s and even into the early 30s. Kids refuse to grow up. They just stay at home. They live in their parents' basement, they get on the Internet, and they talk about how life is hard. Must be nice. Why do they do that? Well, I think Titus 2 has a lot of keys for us, maybe even an answer for us and some help for us. Uh, Paul, after dealing with the false teachers and lawless living of the nominal Christians there, uh, he turns his attention to those who are in the faith and in the church. And what does he say? He says, show yourself to be a model for good works. As I read this multiple times over the course of this week, it struck me more and more how we aren't a model for that. And our kids are watching. So as you read through the things that our Lord would have us to model, as you read through the Old and New Testaments, we, I think we'd easily find ourselves wanting in those areas. In a day when this the pendulum against legalism has swung to the other extreme of what I would call cheap grace. And I don't really like that term, but I'm going to use it here. Um, I think it's a call for action for us. And the term cheap grace actually was coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says this, uh, the preaching of forgiveness, as as he's uh, defining cheap grace, he says it's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Um, and I think that that sums it up well. So here in Titus, we learn just that that he wrote about, right? The cost of discipleship, that grace, the grace of God appears to all of us, bringing salvation. But with that, it also brings training and godliness. And so as we look at this text, I want us to consider those two ideas that we receive training in godliness and what that means to be be godly and where we should receive and where we should be giving that training to. And then also grace bringing salvation with it. And so with that, let's read the text of today. Titus chapter 2 in its entirety. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Titus chapter 2. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent may, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and live, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and, our, and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlo- for all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So before we look at the text uh, and kind of dig into it, I want to make sure that we understand the, the contrast that Paul is trying to make here. Remember, uh, chapter divisions a lot of times uh, can cause us to, to like look forward and not look back. And so I think it's important to look back, especially when you begin a chapter with the word but. He's contrasting something. We need to find out what that, that is. He says, but as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is he contrasting that with? We'll look back at the end of chapter 1. He's contrasting that with, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And so from this, and many other places in Paul's writings, from the mouth of Jesus, and throughout Scripture, old and new, we read that faith and works are inextricably tied together. James said it best in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And I think we could spend a long time teasing that out, but we don't need to. I think James said it very plainly and clearly. A true faith will have good works attached to it, not works that save the person, but works that show that they are saved. But it's a delicate balance between works and grace that defines our Christian lives on this earth. And I think we need to understand that as well. Our sin basically always represents a failure for us to see how those two things work together. All sin is an imbalance, if you will. Pride and arrogance represent our belief that we're better than God and our works prove it. Look at me, look what I've done. Utter lawlessness is our belief that there's something that we can do just once and be safe and then we can kind of live our lives as we please. In these last two chapters of Titus, Paul unveils this balance for us, I think, shows us how and why they must exist together. It's very important for us. The church has kind of historically swung back and forth on this pendulum as well. Um, You see that with silly prohibitions on things like pants and dancing and makeup um, on one end. And then you have... The prohibition, or then on the other end, you have pastors who say the word grace over and over again, but do not say the word Jesus. You have both extremes. Well, we need to find balance. How do we do that? Uh, do what neither one of those extremes are doing, and that's study the scriptures. And so that's what we're going to look at. Let's look at Titus again, chapter 2, starting at verse 2. It says this, Older men are to be sober-minded... Dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So what are his instructions to the men? Well, I think these are men who are driven by what the scriptures teach, by their spiritual disciplines. These are men who are slow to anger, but quick to act, slow to speak, quick to listen, but that doesn't mean that they'll shrink back from adversity. When I read these terms here that, that the men are to be, they kind of denote this firmness, this solidness, sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in the faith, steadfast. These aren't men who are swayed by every wind of doctrine, but are like solid rocks who are pillars in times of peace and in times of difficulty. And then you kind of go down past where he gives the instructions to the older women and what are they to teach the younger men? Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. As a high school teacher, I think this is a great instruction for, for younger men and for older men to be teaching them. Young men, more than anything, need to be able to learn to control their impulses so they're not branded as dummies. They have a future, they have future families, they have future churches to lead, and they should act like leaders. I think that's an important quality, be self-controlled. What about the instructions for women? Look at verses 4 and 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. So for women, we have a very similar set of qualities. Yet for the women, they show their strength in a different way. And this doesn't, this doesn't suggest some kind of inequality at all. On the contrary, I think it shows that women living out their God-given role, role and doing it well is a very strengthening thing for the church. There's a much more practical feel to this set of instructions. I think it's good. It's women showing their strength in action. A very strong theme in Scripture. They are to teach what is good, training the young women to love their husbands and their kids, to take care of the households, all the while doing so under their husband's leadership. We even have this bit about how slaves or bondservants are to act towards their masters. And again, not suggesting that we go out and get slaves, as some of my uh, non-Christian friends have said, that that the scriptures condone, condone slavery by talking about it. That's silly. Uh, however, there was slavery in these days. There were Christians who were slaves. And so for the slave that is a Christian, they are to do their work to the glory of God. And so as I read through these instructions of the old to give to the young, I think, Wow. If this was happening, just think for a minute, if this was happening the way that it should be, the way that Paul's laying this out here, wouldn't the world be an incredible place? It would. However, well, we know that it's not all that incredible all the time. Um, And it's not just happening outside the church. We love to say that these things are happening outside the church. And in, in the church, we're actually teaching our children well. But it's definitely happening inside and outside the church. And so think about it. What's, what's going on with young people today? I have, interestingly enough, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, but I didn't really get an inside look as to how kids are until I started teaching in school. Um, uh, how are young men today? Well, they're learning to conquer things, but it's more of a digital landscape. Rather than facing real problems in the world, rather than being champions in the home, they're champions on some silly little game about downing games, I guess you know you guys know I'm a gamer for sure, but there has to be a balance. Every living hour is spent doing that, then what are you becoming? Young men are praised for their lack of self-control. It's incredible. How they tend to be uh, their impulsivity as boys is something that's like attractive rather than repulsive. Um, they're learning about love from their computers where there's really no love at all. What are young women being taught? Well, they're being taught that God's roles in marriage and in the home are an insult to them. That they should turn them inside out at every chance and on purpose. And sadly, the ones, the women that do understand their role in the home are forced into leadership roles that weren't meant for them. Because the guy that they're married to and the other men in the church aren't leading like they should. And it's a sad testimony and if we want to think of analogy with the master and servant here we could think of just our, our role as employees or employers young people are taught to that showing up for work is something that you kind of do when you want to if you want to and when you get there you should be able to make the rules it's incredible I have students every day tell me about how their boss was mean to them because they were late for work and they got in trouble wow where did they learn to act like this, we want to say. William Goldberg, he wrote a book called Lord of the Flies. You've all heard of it. Uh, I think it's a great teacher for us concerning where did they learn to act like this. What did the boys do on the island when, they were, when there weren't any men around to teach them? They became animals really quickly. Well, where did they learn to act like this? They watched the older generation. Now, to be sure, young people are without excuse when it comes to their behavior. We're not saying that it's someone else's fault. That's, again, what the world would, would have a say. But simply pointing at them, as oftentimes we want to do, and say, I don't get kids these days. We didn't act like this when we were kids. Why do they act like this? If you'll note, that hasn't actually done anything to help. Want to know why they act like this? Or want to know why you didn't act like that? Or I didn't act that way? My parents didn't let me. They were horrible to me if I tried to act that way, if I was disrespectful in the least bit, if I, did, if I acted like I didn't want to work, if I acted like I didn't care about things that I should care about. Want to know why our kids act like that? Why, want to know why the kids today are acting like that? We should look in the mirror. It's important. Fifteen-year-old boys that don't know how to hold a rate are going to turn into 35-year-old men that don't know how to hold a job. And if it seems like I'm picking on boys, I, trust me, I am. They need to be picked on. We have a giant responsibility to them and to the women in the church, the women in our lives. They need us to lead well. And so, yes, I'm, I'm picking on the boys. Show me dysfunctional men, and I'll show you a dysfunctional society. We shouldn't wonder what's happening to our society when we look at our men. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam standing while his wife took the fruit and ate it. It happens today with men who are standing by while their wives leave their homes and their churches. So what do we do, brothers and sisters? How do we do this? Well, to the men, we need to teach our boys to be self-controlled, just as Paul's told us to be. We have to become the rocks in our families and in our churches rather than not. And I think to the younger brothers here, you need to understand, pattern yourselves after the men who teach you and who live this truth out. And when we aren't those men, let us know. We aren't above learning from you as well. And I think that's important to understand, especially when it comes to this, our sin in this area. We need to be told, sometimes we're not good role models, with all respect, of course. Sisters, what do we do? What should you do? Teach women to, lo- who, to love the Lord, to love the role that the Lord has for them. Thankfully, I think we have women in this church that do that. Only God knows his design for you, not society. Lead your children, show them the strength of your character, When men aren't leading, tell them. Tell those men that they aren't leading because they need accountability. And I think it's important for you girls who are here, don't fall for men who won't lead. Wait till they know how to. Trust me, it's worth it. Then compare those guys to the strongest, most godly man you know, which should be your dad. Don't settle for garbage. There's my two cents on that, someone who has three daughters at home. If this sounds like something that I'm passionate about, it is very, it's something that I'm very passionate about. I watched a generation raised up by a church that doesn't know who it is or who God is. I was a part of that generation. I now stand in that generation who's raising another generation. And so what, I, what do we want to do? We want to raise up generation who knows Who their creator is and who knows how to make him known. However, we're going to fail. And so, what do we do when we fail? And that brings us to the second point grace bringing salvation. Look with me at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace has appeared, bringing salvation. For all people. How has it appeared. In the person and in the work. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnate son of God. Why has it appeared. Because. He loves us. Because he had a people set aside. From the foundation of the world. And he came to save. Those people. And he is still saving. Those people. Salvation is offered to all people. Without exception. And we do that. The sheep will hear his voice and they will come. So now let's look at what that grace does. Verses 12 and 13. So grace appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God working in his people doesn't save them so that they can live however they please for the rest of their lives. The grace of God works itself out in his people by causing them to act as they ought to act. Remember Ezekiel 36. What did what did God say to the people? I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. So what do we say to the person who went to the altar when they were at church camp and at, when they were 8 years old and they haven't been back to Sunday school in so long that they don't know their Sunday school teacher's name, even though he was a former NFL player? Repent and believe. That's what we say to them. The Spirit of God working in the believer causes them to renounce ungodliness rather than rebel in it. They live self-controlled rather than selfish. Does that mean the Spirit causes us to be perfect in this world? No. We remain at war with our old self and we understand that. However, the Spirit of God working in us is making us to be more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. This should be apparent. In the life of a believer, and as they continue to walk in Christ. Look at verse 14. Speaking of our great Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That should stir us up right there. It should. He gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, not just our sinful nature. Yes, we need redemption from our sinful nature to be right before God. We need the righteousness of Christ. But what else are we being redeemed from? Lawlessness. Those acts that we did commit and that we would commit, we've been redeemed from them. So then how should we respond more and more? We should stop committing them. We have been redeemed. Notice the second part. To redeem us from lawlessness and to purify us. What does he call us here? A people of his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. And make sure we understand the hope here. What's the hope? What he's done for us. He's redeemed us from lawlessness. What is he doing even right now? Purifying us. What does he call us? His own possession. People who are zealous for good work. Don't think for a moment that those things that the Lord wishes and wants to be true won't become true. If he is purifying me, guess what? I'm going to become pure. Thanks be to God. It is what he is doing in our lives. He doesn't stop. When he says that he will see us through to completion in Christ Jesus, guess what? He will do that thing. And that's also the hope, for us, that's the hope for us as individuals, but it's also the hope for us as we raise our families, and as we bring up the next generation in the church. The sanctification of my children isn't 100% dependent on me, thankfully. That'd be bad. That doesn't take away my responsibility to my own kids, by no means. It doesn't take away our responsibility to the children in this church, to the children in this community. But it does offer hope when we feel like the task is hopeless. I mean, I look at the high school boys in my classes and I wonder how could any one of them be worthy to marry one of my own kids, one of my girls. They barely even tie their shoes. But then I remember that little dummy that I used to be as well. The one who still acts like that from time to time. But thanks be to God, thanks be to the grace of God. I've got better. God is good. He is faithful. He will preserve his church. Our Lord Jesus died to save his church. And he will continue in her until it is finished. And we all go home with him. That's the hope that we have. And so in conclusion, let's not forget our responsibility to those who come after us. To those who are with us even now. Brothers and sisters, model good behavior and disciplines that they may see and watch and know and follow. It's the future of the church. Let us not forget that the hope that we have is in Jesus Christ, not our own behavior, thankfully. Jesus Christ, who loves his people, keeps his church safe, even from itself. Let us all endeavor to model the very gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word and it tells us to model good behavior it's kind of scary because um, you've commanded us to do something that we struggle deeply with but yet you are gracious you are forgiving you are even right now making us better than we were because you love your people because you love your church and so Lord we beg your help when it comes to raising our families when it comes to leading the church We beg forgiveness for those times that we don't. Lord, help us not only to be leaders in our homes and our church, but also in society that is desperate. And they need the gospel. They don't need our morality. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they need to see us living it out. And so, Lord, we beg your help. Help us as we live as we ought to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.